Eric, we're talking about the uh, Texas abortion law. Um, and we started just with the basic sources relevant to abortion, um, which we were showing um, how, you know, when it comes to, I guess, Jewish bioethics, when you want to use, initially you try to go to the biblical sources to find out what the Torah says about it. And as we discussed, in this case, there is contradictory statements within the Torah itself, and we're going to try to figure out um, meaning how to reconcile the contradictory statements. And also, once we finished with the Torah, we went to the rabbinic text, which also seemed to contradict whether, again, the fetus is considered some form of life, is it not considered some form of life. Um, and so that's what we're trying to reconcile here and figure that out. Um, <coughs> so today I hope to get to... Um, how this is relevant, again, to specifically the Texas state law um, in the sense of should we, as Jews, be protesting the law um, and how that works. Meaning, does it at all fit within um, halachic criteria or not, which we already mentioned clearly doesn't. Um, but, again, as we'll see, there's some differences between um, and it might, on the surface, might sound a little almost racist, but there is a difference between abortions for Jews and abortions for non-Jews, um, meaning the performance of the abortion. The, the Torah is actually stricter for non-Jews when it comes to abortion, when it comes to when it comes to a Jewish uh, fetus. So we're going to discuss that a little, which is a fascinating concept um, that we find. Um, very, as we're going to see, it's, it's actually an exception to the rule. Usually, as we know, as Jews, we are, we have a lot more uh, restrictions from the Torah. In this case, for whatever reason, as, as we'll see, it seems to be the opposite. So that's a very important aspect of living in non-Jewish society, where their, their criteria and our criteria, meaning from the Torah itself, seems to be very different. Um, Okay, so let's, I don't remember exactly where we ended off, but we at least brought two sources, two biblical sources, which the implication is that the fetus is not considered a life, according to the Torah, by the fact that it says in Exodus, there's only monetary payment, um, there's only monetary compensation in a case where someone um, strikes a woman and causes her, um, causes a miscarriage. So the Torah says very clearly that there's only monetary compensation in that case. The assumption is even if it would be a life, of course, um, it would be, be maybe even capital, if it's intentional, capital crime. So the fact that the Torah only applies monetary compensation, this is in, in source number five here on the sheet, is a proof that we do not consider a life, or at least it's not a capital, it's cap at least it's not capital. According to some, there's different opinions on how to interpret the verse. Now we brought from uh, Maimonides, where he clearly, and the Mishnah in all, two rabbinic sources, um, which clearly, the implication from those sources are that, um, <coughs> the implication is that, uh, again, it's not considered a life, and the fact that we're saying anytime there's danger to the mother, um, that automatically the mother's life overrides the life of the fetus. Um, so depending on how you look at that, as we said, it could be from what's called, Maimonides seems to be applying the law of Rodef, which is, that means it's a pursuer. 
um, many, sometimes you have a conflict um, between two lives and we have to decide whose life is more important. So Maimonides says um, <clears throat> that until the fetus is born, if the fetus is endangering the life of the mother, the fetus is considered a pursuer, that means just as someone who's chasing someone to kill them, that even an innocent bystander has a right to kill the pursuer. Um, uh, not just in self-defense, not just the person being chased, but anyone has a life. This is currently going on, um, as we know, in the courts this week with uh, that guy in Kenosha, I forgot his name, Wittenauer. Very Wittenhouse. Wittenhouse. He is claiming you know, self-defense. That's what his defense team is saying. And I don't know if you saw any of the trial yesterday. <laughs> Without getting to the political aspects of it, just as far as, again, the legal aspects, uh, they have pictures, and the one of the victims themselves admitted in, to, in cross-examination that he pointed a gun at Wittenhauer, um, at Witten, Wittenhouse, sorry. And there's a picture of it, actually, where you see he's pointing um, a gun at, at Wittenhouse, the one who shot him, prior to, to being shot. So that would be, <clears throat> again, what we call the, um, halachically, that's a, he has a, the, the person, again, the person pointing the gun would have a din rodev, and therefore Wittenhouse had every right to shoot to, to save his own life in that case. Right? As we know, the, the, the principle is, someone's coming to kill you, you have every right to kill them first, even before they shoot. So if someone's pointing a gun at you, there's no question. Again, maybe you can argue, in this case, it's it's mutual pursuers. Maybe they were both pursuing each other. We'll see how the court decides. Um, but this is re very relevant to this case. Again, we consider any time there's a danger to the life of the mother, we consider the fetus um, a a pursuer, says Maimonides. Um, now, that the fact that he has to bring in the concept of pursuer would seem like that Maimonides does consider the fetus some form of life. Um, because if it wasn't the pursuer, it seemed like it would be a problem. Without the principle of, of the fetus being considered a pursuer of the mother's life, it would sound like you can't just, um, um, again, abort the child. So is, if it's not a life, um, what's the problem? So that's something that we're going to have to deal with. In other words, meaning, assuming, and, and we sort of proved from the biblical text that the fetuses would not be considered alive. So then what's, what is the problem with abortion? Why is abortion only permitted when it's endangering the life of the mother? It should be permitted in all cases well, if it's not alive. Was, what's the issue with abortion? Um, so uh, again, we had this other mission in Allot where we're again discussing a woman who's in the, the midst of labor where again it says if they're having a problem with getting the fetus out you would be allowed to abort the fetus. Um, now again we said that you could only derive from that and extrapolate from that case at that point where the woman's already in labor so um, you can argue it's only that case that we allow abortion of the fetus um, because at that point maybe it's considered more of a life as opposed to earlier stages of pregnancy we don't see um, the um, no, sorry, the opposite. In this case, it would be even at that stage, we're allowing an abortion from that Mishnah, from num note number seven here. Okay. And then on the other hand, we brought uh, just again. This is just a summary of, of last week. On the other hand, we brought um, from note number eight here on the on the handout on your screens. It says if a woman is on the birthing table and she dies, this is talking about on Shabbat, where 
Um, we we normally we all, we violate Shabbat to save a life, and here it says you can violate Shabbat to save the fetus. The mother already died during labor in this case. Says the Talmud, you can now go ahead and bring a knife through a public domain, whatever the case is, and you. Um, let me just move this down here so we can read it. Um, we can violate Shabbat to save the fetus. The implication there is, why would we, we allow violating Shabbat? If the fetus is not alive, um, why would we allow violating Shabbat? Like I discussed in the past, just for... Yes, you have a question about number 7 and number 9. We didn't get to number 9 yet, so you can't have a question number 9. But go ahead on number 7. seven. It says if the majority of the uh, fetus has emerged, we do not touch it. Does that include a, um, a breech birth where the baby is out up until like the head of the shoulders? So the, so the majority means either a majority of the actual of the torso is out. If it's coming out breech, I, I don't exactly know how to measure it. It's a good question. Um, or it means the head, once the head is out, so then it's considered a full life. Um, in halacha, um, that's the implication. The, the Talmud here discusses this on this Mishnah. Once the head is out, or again, most of the of the body, um, and again, in the situation of breach, I don't know exactly how to measure that. Um, when it's coming out head first, so the assumption is most of the torso is out, or even the head. So, so then we would, we no longer. Then, then now it's, they're both considered full lives, and therefore we won't have the principle of road death that the child is now, or, or actually we don't have the principle that the mother's life overrides the fetus life. Yes, many. Okay, um, I've read commentary on this, extensive commentary, and when they say the majority, it actually is the head. No, instead, it's even the head. But if it's coming out breach, no, no, listen, many. If it's coming out breach, so then a majority of the rest of the body would also be considered. No, this is not what the, the commentary said, according to an extensive thing by Rabbi Basil Herring, which I've read a few times, and, it's the, and given all the commentaries, it's, if it's a breach and the head is uh, stopping birth, it is not the majority. The majority is only when the head is born. Okay, I would have to see that. If you could, if you could, majority. if you could take a picture of it and send it to me, I would be glad to look at it, but that's not what I understand. Uh, there's, okay. there's two problems with that. One is in the case of a breach, where the body can fit out, but the head can't fit out through the pelvis, you know, the mother could die, well, you know, unless you crush the baby's skull and pull it out. The second is, where the head comes out, but the shoulders don't come out, the mother, that could also, you know, kill the mother, uh, unless you break the baby. Now, this can be done without killing the baby. You can break the baby's shoulder bone, the, the um, I forgot what it's called, and fold it and pull it out. Dystocia. You had to do it. So, and then, so that's the cases this mission is talking about. But we're saying at a certain point in the birth, in the birthing of the baby, it is no longer a fetus; it's a full life. So now, the baby's life is equal to the mother's life, and and you can't necessarily choose one over the other. So even in, if it's endangering the mother in that case, it's not clear. I mean, you know, you'd have to know what to do. But, but what we're saying is it's only in the fetus, when it's still considered a fetus, that we allow an abortion to save the life of the mother. Once the baby's out, now it's a full life. So now it's a decision, just like any decision in, in halacha or in legal law, you have to decide between two lives at this point. 
Um, so, so that's that's what it's saying. And and the nuance is, as Manny's pointing out, and, and Alan's pointing out, is exactly where, which part of the birthing would it be considered a full life? Um, so that's that's uh, seems to be Manny saying that he's not agreeing with me, Basil Herring. Herring, whatever his name is, and not agreeing with me, which I would have to see inside to see what his sources are. He, he's, he's someone I feel confident uh, disagreeing with. So I would have to see his sources before I disagree. But um, So if you could send me that, I would be glad to look at that. Okay, so, so um, again, moving on to number eight would seem to imply something differently, meaning these sources, again, apply up until now, a fetus is not considered a life. If you look at number eight, which is a different uh, uh, section of the Talmud, it discussing, it's discussing here that even if the woman is giving birth on Shabbos and she dies during labor, so now the question is, can we violate Shabbat to save the fetus? Says the Talmud, yes. Okay, now if the fetus is not considered a full life, why are we allowing violation of Shabbat? Um, do we violate Shabbat for potential life? You can make that argument. That would be one way of understanding this, to reconcile it. That we violate Shabbat not only for, to save a life, but even for potential life. The problem with that is, as I, and I think I mentioned this last week, is that, uh, for example, fertility cases, we don't say, let's say a woman, uh, I had this case, I said, uh, I told you like a month ago, where a rabbi in the community called me, that he has a woman who, the doctor, her fertility, that she's going through IVF, and they want to harvest her eggs on Shabbat. Um, and she wants to drive to the place to, she has to drive to the clinic. So actually the, the, the woman was in New York, actually in Manhattan. She was in a different borough. She needed to drive to Manhattan to the clinic. The doctor said she, she needs to come in on, on Saturday morning. So in that case, there's no one, as far as I know, no traditional halachic expert will, would allow one to violate Shabbat to harvest eggs. You'd either have, you'd, I mean, in this, first of all, the truth is in that case it's ridiculous. You can come in Friday before Shabbat. You can come in Saturday night. So because the doctor, you know, needs to play golf or whatever he wants to do, to, that doesn't mean you're allowed to violate Shabbat, obviously. But, but assuming even if it's 100% certain, there's no other time that you can harvest these eggs, we still wouldn't allow you to violate Shabbat um, just for the, you know, for the, for the maybe you're going to produce a viable child with this IVF. So, so note again, violating Shabbat for potential life seems problematic. So, so again, this, this uh, section of the Talmud would seem to apply that the fact that we're allowing violation of Shabbat um, maybe would, we are considering the fetus some form it, of life. Could it be that they're considering the loss of the mother and fulfilling, fulfilling her, her, her pregnancy and fulfilling her wish and replacing a life? What do you mean here? But the mother died in this case. So you're yeah. saying just, yeah. But again, we don't violate Shabbat to fulfill someone's uh, wish. You know, it's, we, we don't. This is a life, a wish of life. Yeah, but I'm saying it's not. A, that's the point. Till now, we're saying it's not a life. The fetus is not a life. Is the fetus a life or not? So you're right. If it's a life, 100%, we need to violate Shabbat. But if it's not a life, why are we allowing the violation of Shabbat? Potential. It's potential life, right? You understand what I'm saying? It's it's only a potential life, according to what we've been saying. If it's not a life, right. it's so. Do we violate Shabbat for potential life? That's already what we call a a, a, a different level of allowance. We we never see that anywhere else. With you know, again, IVF is also potential life. 
So well, if, if the mother dies and the potential life is not produced, then it's like a double one. And can we avoid one? Okay, so again, it's an it's an emotional, uh, you know, it's very, uh, and it's an emotional aspect. It's you know, it's meaning, you know. No, no, but I'm saying is we don't violate Shabbat. Again, it has to be the only no, the only source we have to violate Shabbat is to save a life. We always allow violation of Shabbat, even even if it's a you know a ten percent, a three percent chance saving a life, we violate Shabbat. But it has to be a life. Again, let's say for a pet, this is a big issue today. For example, I'm just showing you. Let's say someone's dog uh, was hit by a car. God, God forbid. Okay. Um, one second, uh, Alan. Wait one second. Let me let me say my statement. So let's say someone's dog was hit by a car. We don't say you can violate Shabbat to save the life of a dog. I know many people are going to have a problem with this, and in today's day and age, people consider their dogs their children. Um, but but halacha would say no. You can't violate Shabbat to save the life of an animal, because it's not a even though it's a life, but it's not human life. So a fetus, again, if we're saying it's not considered a full life, what gives us the license? So it's an emotional thing. Yes, many people are attached to their pets almost as much as they're attached to their kids. But for emotions, we don't, uh, you know, because someone's going to get very emotional about if they lose their dog. Again, we don't allow you um, to violate Shabbat. Um, again, maybe another uh, depends which rabbi, yes, but that's... But when, when the understanding that uh, the fetus is... The fetus is not alive when the understanding is not uh, complete. It's not a hundred percent. Thank you, many. Like in um, some believe that at, at a certain point the fetus is alive, so it's a, a new life up to a certain point. So if the understanding is not absolute, then would you go with one side? So that's what we're trying to figure out. What is the understanding? Meaning, again, till now, all the sources we read were saying that up until the birth, it's not a full life. That's why you could perform an abortion to save the life of the mother. Now, you're saying there might be other sources, which we'll see about, yes. Christianity clearly holds like that, but this, we're not talking about Christian ethics here, we're talking about Jewish ethics. No, so. no uh, in Judaism, uh, I don't have the source right now, but I, I had read that up to a certain point, it's a it's alive. It's the fetus is alive. Well, I think once uh, the mother dies, the fetus becomes uh, more more is the next uh, one to consider. So that potential life becomes is going to become a life more relevant. The mother's still alive. Her life takes precedence. When the mother dies, yes. the uh, Fetus's life, you know, takes precedence. Yes. So, so, but I want to just finish off with Mario, Shelley, and I'll get to you one second. Which is Mario. So, my point is that yes, we're trying to figure it out: is it a life or not? You're right. If it's a life, so then th- that's that's exactly what we're asking. There seems to be a contradiction here in the Jewish sources whether a fetus is considered a life. The fact that this Talmud is saying you do violate Shabbat, the implication of that is that it is considered somewhat of a life. So you're right, you're correct. That's exactly what we're trying to figure out. We haven't come to a conclusion yet. So you're, you're saying you already know the conclusion. We don't know it yet. We're figuring it out. That's, the, that's what we're doing here. So, but you're correct, if it's a life. That, that is the implication of this note number eight, that it is somewhat of a life. Shelley, go ahead. 
Actually, once the mother dies, mm -hmm. the mother is no longer supporting the fetus, mm -hmm. so the fetus is alive, even though it's inside. Not quite. The, the, there's aid is a little more complicated. It starts with the clause: if a woman is on the birthing table, which means already she's in labor when she dies. So the implication mm -hmm. is, if she were not in labor and the woman dies and it's Shabbat, you would not tear open her belly and produce a child. Is that correct, Yossi? That could be. That could be. We don't know. I mean, we're trying to figure it out. Again, the, the implication might be, um, you know, it's again, you could only extrapolate from this this case, which you're right. It's all at the end stages of labor, like Alan's pointing out, where the baby's full term and the baby's almost, almost out. So maybe only in this case do we allow you to violate Shabbat, but not prior. That's a, that's, that would be one way of reading it, yes. Consider that the woman is six months pregnant and dies. Would you then yes, be alive? So gonna, exactly, so we don't see that. Or yeah. suppose she went to premature labor at six months. Right, so and by the way, the halacha, just bottom line is, again, if, if this is relevant, of course you have to speak to a local rabbi, um, but, but uh, what I'm saying is, the, as far as I know, the halacha is we save a pregnant woman who, let's say, starts bleeding or something on Shabbat. We do violate Shabbat to try and save the fetus at any point, um, except maybe up until 40 days. We see it's different. But we do try, to, the, the bottom line halacha is we do violate Shabbat to save a fetus at any stage. Even though your point is well taken, Shelley, from this source, maybe it's only in the end stage of the or the end stage of labor or the beginning of labor, you know, full term baby. So it is a valid point, but I'm just saying practically at the end of the day, the halach is we do violate Shabbat to save a fetus. Any at any stage. And the other but the other situation where the woman's labor is in trouble woman's pregnancy is in trouble, she's bleeding or whatever. They may not, you may justify not because the fetus is a potential life, but because the mother's in distress. If she's bleeding during her pregnancy, that could be a problem. So I'm, I'm not sure that it's a... No, no, but it's, it's to specifically save the life of the fetus. It says clearly, you can violate Shabbat to save the life. You say in common practice, even if the woman is not on the birthing table, you know, if she's three months pregnant and starts bleeding, they will treat her on Shabbat. Yes. But it's not necessarily because they consider the fetus a life, and maybe because they consider the mother's life is my being dangerous because it's bleeding during pregnancy. I, I'm saying the implication that I, the way I understand it, it's, it's even if it's clear the mother's life is not in danger, we still will violate Shabbat to save a fetus. Um, so that's the way I understand it, but, it, but I need to really... Yes, yes. Again, so, so seemingly contradictory, by the way, the next one is also, if you look at the next source, which is another Mishnah, in a different tractate, the Mishnah says, for a day-old child, um, Here's the opposite, again, the opposite implication. For a day-old child, one who kills it is liable. That means, in other words, meaning the implication is a day before that, meaning when it's not a day-old child, it's, it's in utero, even though it's full term, you're not liable for that killing, meaning at least it's not capital crime. Um, and by the way, even the day-old child, this is important to note, just as a sidebar, halacha doesn't consider even a child who's born... Um, it has to be born full term. I mean, these days might be somewhat different in the sense of um, um, because we have uh, incubators and everything. But in those days, if a child was born uh, an eight-month child. Um, after eight months, many cases didn't survive. 
um, the Gemara talks about. So therefore, we don't consider even a child who's born up until 30 days, in, in essence, what we call, might be considered a trefa. Trefa means we don't know if it's really going to live. In those days, again, when the care, the level of care was much less. So, um, so even if someone, if, um, if a child wasn't born full term, and let's say someone kills it after it's born, um, it's not it might not be considered murder because the, we view the child as what's called a trefa, which means it's someone that has a terminal illness because we don't know it's going to survive. The assumption is, again, in those days before they had incubators and all the technology we had to bring children, um, you know, fetuses who are born non-full term to, to bring them to be viable, to get them to the stage of viability, um, wasn't they didn't have that in those days. Of course, today with technology, that changed. But the bottom line is, this Source 9 is saying, for a day-old child, one who kills it is liable. So the implication again is, prior to that, that means if it's in utero, you're not liable for that, for that uh, I don't want to call it killing, because it's not even a life. The implication is it's not a life prior to that. Because if it was a life, why wouldn't you be liable even prior? Okay? Are they meaning 24 hours? What? Are they meaning 24 hours? Um, no, I think it means after birth. It's just the, the language is saying it's a day-old child, meaning. But any time after birth, or it has to be. Uh, no, any time. That's what he was just asking. That's what Mary was asking. It means I believe it means any time. Once it's born, it's telling you now it's a full life. The implication right. is up until now it's not a full right. life. So again, we have so at least two sources this way, two sources that way. Yeah. So, so that the radical left wing who says you can have a, an abortion after birth, it's it's murder at that point. After birth, it's not an abortion. That's called uh, murder. Oh, they um, call it an abortion. No, no, you mean a partial birth abortion. Birth. Are you referring to partial birth? They call a mother a birthing birth. Are you referring to partial birth abortion? Is that what you're referring to, Alan? You be clear. Don't use um, catch phrases from political jargon. Let's be very clear what you're saying. You're an OBGYN. What do you mean? A partial birth abortion? No, not partial. No, that's, that's before. Um, I'm talking about the, after a, a birth. After a birth, it's not an abortion. Everyone agrees it's called murder. That's saying if the mother doesn't want the kid, they can kill it and it's still an abortion. Okay, I don't know where you, which right-wing websites you've been reading, but oh, I'm not sorry. familiar with that procedure. Not so right wing. There have been attempts to pass laws that if someone it's, an abortion is attempted and the child is born anyway and it's born alive, you cannot kill it. They cannot pass that law. <laughs> I mean, it's the obvious. Left wing that, literally, you're just saying that if the child is born despite an effort to abort it, you can't kill it. And the, and the legislature, no legislature is willing to pass that law at this moment. Okay. Um, so for even Texas? Texas doesn't have a law like that? No state has a law like that yet, oh. even though efforts have been made to pass a law like that. Okay, interesting. That was a sport back then, was a sport for the kings. Remember? Kill all the newborns. Yes. Yeah. That's, that's murder. In There's no question in that case. Once the child's born, it's murder. Um, again, if it's a viable child, in, in your case, Shelley, by the way, it's not so simple. If you're saying they tried to abort it and now it, it, it didn't work and it's born, again, if the child is not viable, that would be a trefa, which is also a lower level of life in the sense of it's not capital. It's still murder. 
Um, it's still prohibited and murder, I think, but it's not capital. Okay. Um, now it has to be just like an adult, by the way. If, the, if an adult, by the way, this is uh, important, Allah to know. If someone uh, kills a trefa, that means an adult who's terminally ill, so it's not a capital crime. It's murder, but it's not capital. Um, so you need to have viability of life to be considered capital crime. Uh, yeah. w when this became a big issue, by the way, there's this OBGYN in uh, Philadelphia, Kermit Gosnell, who's been called America's biggest serial killer. Because he would do late-term abortions, and many of these kids were born alive. And then he would pit them. He'd put a needle in their spine and suck out their spinal, their spinal cord. So he was killing babies born after partial birth abortions. Mm -hmm. so that's what first stimulated these kind of laws, that you can't do that. He was sent to prison for the rest of his life. He's already an old man, but you know, they could not get that legislation passed, even though this guy was, and maybe others who do partial birth abortions were doing the same thing. They could not get that law passed. Okay, interesting. Um, okay, so... So, and by the way, I heard there was a, it was, I once read about its case in Wyoming where this uh, boyfriend killed his wife, his, his, his girlfriend. She was pregnant. So the, in Wyoming, I think it's Wyoming, the law is that in order to get capital punishment, you have to kill at least two people. So the, uh, the prosecution was claiming he killed two lives. Um, even though abortion is legal, based on Roe v. Wade, but... It doesn't the, the law never said it's not a life? They just legalized abortion. That was the argument of the prosecution, and therefore you should get the cap, you get capital punishment. Obviously, the defense was, um, and I don't know what happened in that case, but the defense was that since the abortion is legal, so therefore it's clearly not considered a life. So he didn't kill two people. In other words, it's an interesting question. Does Roe v. Wade answer this question whether a fetus is a life or not, um, or not? So it's the fact that we're permitting abortion, and you see that clearly here, Halakha is struggling, having that same struggle. Just because we're saying abortion of a fetus is permitted doesn't necessarily mean it's not considered a full life. How does that work? Um, so you know, it's a similar, I'm just showing, pointing out that this, it's, a, it's a legal question also. Um, does one necessarily imply the other? If you're just permitting abortion doesn't necessarily mean that it's not a, that it's not considered Roe a life. Roe versus Wade did not settle that issue. Right, that's what I'm pointing yeah. out. So that was this case Before in Wyoming. Judge Gorsuch said about that in the context of euthanasia, and he said clearly, you know, it's not. It didn't settle that issue. It implies one way that it's not a life, but it did not settle that issue. Mm -hmm. Manny, go ahead. I have sent you a couple of things. I first sent you something from the internet that says body and head. I then sent you... I don't read things off the internet. Sanhedrin 72 says the head. I then looked up Sanhedrin 72 and sent you the portion that it's the head. Yeah, yeah, but again, the head or majority. The halacha says, Manny, everything you sent me, that, that's true, but the halacha says the head or majority. And that's no, the question, what's majority? Yes, no, that's what the halacha says. I'm telling you what the Rambam rules. The Rambam says they had a majority. So, okay, I'm, I'm telling you what, uh, that it was mentioned both ways, but I'm telling you what the Talmud originally right. said. Okay, but maybe some other people might have, might have changed it, but in the Talmud, it's the, it, once the head has emerged during the birthing, he may yes. not be armed. True, that, that we have here on the sheet. We already said that here on the, on the handout. Excuse me? I'm we stated that on the handout, right here. 
Yes, that's true. The language of the Talmud is the head, but all the commentaries and the practical halachic um, codifiers say it means the head or the majority. I got it. Yes, but not the Talmud. Okay. Okay, got that. Um, okay, so so let's continue on here. This is another interesting. So this is a very important uh, source. Number ten is another. Uh, piece in the Talmud, another quote from the Talmud. I'll give, give you a brief introduction here because it's totally out of context, which is discussing the laws of Truma here. Laws of Truma is um, our laws um, that it says when you, when a uh, a Kohen, when someone has produce, so they have the Kohen, the, the priests, they didn't get income, they worked in the temple, they would get, um, I think it's 2% of the produce, would go what's called Truma, you'd have to separate 2% of your crop um, and give it and the, would go to the priests. That's That was their income. Okay, that's known as tr- the laws of Truma. So now what happens, so now only Kohanim could eat Truma, by the way. Once it's separated, it becomes sanctified and a, a non-Kohen family, someone who's not in a Kohen family, cannot partake of Truma. Okay, cannot partake of these tithes because again, they're saying they're called sanctified. Um, so no, us lowly uh, Israelites cannot eat from it. Okay, only any Kohanim here in the class? Or, or Kohen families? No. So we're all lowly Israelites. So, um, so uh, you're a Kohen, Shelley? No, I was going to say okay. 39 states now treat the murder of a pregnant woman as uh, a murder of a fetus. They consider murder. Okay. Interestingly enough, and Wyoming just became the 39th state to do that, maybe in response to that case, but they, they so they, in that sense, they give the fetus certain status as a victim of a murder. So, and Texas is one of those states? I don't know the answer to that question. Okay, so let, let's just, uh, I want to get to, uh, I want to run out of time here. So let's number ten again. So we're talking about truma again, where the there was a separation of these crops, and the uh, the Talmud says so. So the halacha is only a family of a kohen could eat. So what happens if there's a girl in the family, a single woman, um, daughter of a kohen? So she's allowed to, of course, partake of truma. Now she gets married to a non-kohen. That's me, by the way. I'm the oh, daughter okay. of a kohen. See that? So you can uh, you could partake of truma. So. So we're not going to discuss you, as you'll see, uh, because the case is not such a nice case. So, so we're not going to put you in into this case. But the the daughter, so the halach is the Jewish law says that if the daughter of a kohen, by the way, my wife is also a daughter of a kohen. Um, so if she she is single, she can eat, continue to eat truma. Once she gets married, and now she's so to speak leaving, she's joining her husband's family. Um, the sexist aspect of Judaism. She's now part of the husband's family, who's not a Kohen. Um, so she has to. She stops eating truma. Okay. Now, uh, what happens then if the husband then dies? Now, she's back to her father's family technically. So she can begin eating truma again. But that that law is true only if she didn't have a child. Once she had a child from her non-Kohen husband, um, she now doesn't go back to her father's home to continue to eat truma after the death of her husband. Okay? So, but the Talmud says like this, if a Kohen's daughter married Israel, so I'm going to read this in number 10 here, who then died, she may immerse and eat truma that night. Um, that's what it says. She goes to the mikvah because she may have to, you have to only eat tr- truma impurity, male, male or female, has nothing to do with females per se, 
Truma has to only be eaten in a pure state, so therefore she goes to the mikvah, she could start eating Truma once her husband died. Rav Chista clarified she may immerse any Truma only for 40 days. Since if she is not pregnant, then she is not pregnant. If she, she's not pregnant, okay, so then she's allowed to go back to continue eating the Truma. But if she's pregnant, then the fetus is mere water until 40 days have elapsed. So I mean, the Talmud saying, she only has, we have to figure out, we don't know, her husband died, we don't know if she's pregnant. Because again, if she's pregnant, she would not be allowed to eat truma. So we have no idea, so we give her 40 days, after 40 days, um, then we'll see if she's, if she's pregnant. Um, but the first 40 days, it says the Talmud, is not a problem, because even if she is pregnant, um, then it's the Talmud calls the fetal tissue at that point after the first 40 days of conception mere water okay so this is a very important statement which the many of the halachic decisors um, extrapolate from this statement of the Talmud again totally out of context but it's saying very clearly that the first 40 days of pregnancy a fetus is considered mere water clear very clear statement that at least during the first 40 days, it's not a life. This has massive halachic implications in the sense of um, we are very, very lenient, you know, even though, as we're going to see, we technically, halacha only allows abortions in cases where there's a, again, a danger to the mother, some form of danger to the mother's life, either f- physically, emotionally, as we're going to get to. Um, but if, it, if it's within 40 days of conception, uh, there's many... There are many other reasons that we would allow abortion, even, you know, much uh, for financial reasons, maybe for any uh, much lower, uh, much lower threshold of the allowance of an abortion, based on this quote from the Talmud, that the first 40 days, it's a fetus is mere water, it's just tissue. Yes. Alan. Uh, uh, One second, Alan, hand his hand up. Give Alan a chance. Then we'll get... Alan, yeah. Yeah, so the daughter of... A uh, Kohen was pregnant by a non-Kohen after 40 days no longer considered a Kohen? Say it again. The daughter of a Kohen yes. was pregnant by a non-Kohen after 40 if, days is no longer considered a Kohen. In other words, it, no, it's once she's pregnant in the, in the, in the context of marriage. If she's single... Um, doesn't I don't think it affects her, the pregnancy. It's only no, as we oh. consider like sort of moving over to the husband's family. Um, you know, it's even if she's not pregnant, she can't eat once she's married to another to a non-Kohen. It's nothing to do with pregnancy. She's okay. sort of left the the her truma rights once she marries a non-Kohen. But, but we're talking about now. If the husband died, she goes back. She reverts back to her father's family. And, and she's, now she gets the rights again of Truma, but if she's pregnant, she doesn't go back. That's the point. Oh, okay. This yes. seems, Rabbi, this seems, and I'm just reading between the lines, that they're saying that it's not a bad idea for a, a woman who's married to an Israel, a, a Kohen, a woman who's married to an Israel, and then the husband dies, that uh, as soon as she finds, she should find out if she's... Uh, Pregnant, and if she is pregnant, she should probably have an abortion. So that she no, 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 no. It's not discussing whether she should have an abortion. It does, this gemara has nothing to do with abortion. We're just—it it doesn't mention it. God forbid. We're not telling her to have an abortion. That's not what it's saying here. It's saying, depending if she—we have to ascertain whether she's pregnant or not. 
because she needs to know, can she, she's moving back into her father's home, the assumption is, so can she continue to eat truma or not? Can she go back to eating truma? So we're saying it depends on her, sta on her pregnancy, if she's pregnant. But during the first 40 days of pregnancy, there's no issue. It's as if she's not pregnant, that's the point. Yeah, but just say she is pregnant, and she has an abortion before 40 days, she can still go back to her kind of status. If she if she had an abortion, yeah, not. yes, she could. Yes, that's so what it would right? seem like. Yes. So, if, uh, so, uh, so uh, again, reading between the lines, this woman might find that a good reason in her head for whatever to say. You know what? Let me have an abortion so that I can go go back to my. Yeah, but again, I mean, there has to be some implication for an abortion. Uh, we don't well, just allow. It's just water. Okay, so. Uh, okay, yeah, but it's still not so simple. We're gonna we're gonna get to the reasons why an abortion at will is problematic. Just saying that it sounds like a bit of a. But it's not telling you to have an abortion. Don't read between the lines in the sense, that sense. Lousy reason. Okay. Mario, what do you think? What will happen after eighty days if she's pregnant? So then she she, she cannot eat truma. No, she can't eat truma. Even though her husband died, she doesn't go back. In the sense that she doesn't get back her rights of truma. But if she goes back, and then the first 40 days she is uh, truma, then yeah. 40 days she doesn't. After once, pregnant. we're saying once we realize she's pregnant, after 40 days we know that she's pregnant, she, can, she has to stop eating truma. Even if she lives with her father. Yes, yes. She can eat other stuff. Things. She can go to Walmart and buy uh, dinner. She can go to Chick-fil-A, whatever. Now what is sacred? <laughs> not, not sacred food. Right, exactly. Okay. Yeah, Shelly, what do you say? Is this one of the sources enabling embryonic research? I mean, why Judy takes such a liberal position on embryonic research? When you say embryonic, you mean uh, pre-embryo or actual embryo? Or embryo. You know, cell an aborted embryo or within? No, not born. Not you create. You create an embryo in a petri dish. Right. So that's pre-embryo, meaning it's not. It's not a. It's not inserted yet into the woman. You're saying no, in it's a petri. Still an embryo. It's just not implanted. Yeah, so they call it pre-embryo. I don't know. They used to call it pre-embryo. I don't know what they call. Pre-embryo. Embryo means within the woman. That's the assumption. But anyway, well, so so yes, a hundred percent. Well, not this is. You don't even need this source. Meaning, here we're saying even if it's a potential life in the woman, it's still not considered anything until 40 days. It's just water. That means it's nothing. The, what your case is even less, and therefore Judaism, yes, is very pro. We have no problem with doing research on, uh, you know, on, uh, on you know, uh, pre-embryos, as they call it, because... Because uh, it's not even inserted once it, before it's inserted to the woman, it's even a lower stage. It's a much less stage than than this case. This case is literally in the woman. It's growing. It it's gonna become a life within 40 days. When it's a pre-embryo in a petri dish, it's really nothing at that point. You can flush it down the toilet. I've had this question many times. People who did IVF and they have eggs in freezers. You know, you know they charge you every year for rent. You know these these uh, places places that store your your pre-embryos. So if a woman freezes her eggs, or even pre-embryos that are already fertilized, many people, you know, they keep them frozen for many years. So this woman uh, called me up, this was like a year ago, that this place in New York has all her, she, they keep on charging her, and they, they're saying if she doesn't respond, if she doesn't pay, they're going to just, they're going to destroy them. So she wanted to know halachically, is that okay? I said, yeah, it's not a problem. According to Jewish law, there's no issue, pre-embryos are literally nothing. 
um, we have no problem destroying them or using them for research for sure it's a beautiful thing do you that's why stem cell research is also hundred percent in Jewish law stem cell research is hundred percent permitted sorry Mary go ahead do you no, see any applica applications or practical uh, uses from this point to to modern life in modern life yes everything we're saying is is we're not up to the application yet but everything we're saying is is relevant today to this question we're getting to the Texas abortion question so it's very important no, the point regarding the, the regarding the coins coins families yes well we're, we're only focusing on one line here which is this meaning that the truma part is not relevant today we don't uh, do truma we, um, because we don't have a temple etc but the, the, the we're just trying to extrapolate a key point here which is okay that the fetus is mere water until 40 days it's you're right that's the way we work in, in Jewish laws it's a totally different application here to Truma but we're seeing this principle where the Talmud yeah, yeah. is stating up until 40 days it's nothing it's water um, that's like five six weeks yeah so I, like I've had cases um, where I've discussed with reverend women um, not abortions but the miscarriage where halakhically by the way you don't we don't even bury we the custom is yes we bury a fetus um, if a woman miscarries but halakhically up until a certain point it's based on this statement for sure and even later there's no obligation to have a funeral or or bury the the fetus listen emotionally for the for the parents many times you know it's a good thing for them to have closure but Many rabbis will tell you, don't allow them to come. Um, it's, not, it's not, you know, we don't consider it a life in any which form. It doesn't need burial, etc., etc. Based on this, so there's not only abortion applications, it's applications for many other things, for burials and okay. exactly how we treat yes, the tissue. with the new Texas law, the new Texas law that is the, the heart is beating. That's within that time. Um, okay, so we're going to get there. We're not, we're not there yet. We're getting to Texas law. Going too fast for us. This is a very, we take things methodically. But it's a, that's, we're, that's where we're headed. Yeah, many. Okay, so I just want to get this very clear. Is an abortion until 40 days, according to Jewish law, a completely benign act? It's got no, no consequences. I wouldn't but use the language of completely benign. So let me explain. Okay. So I wouldn't use the language of completely benign. That's that's too strong for us rabbis. Um, that's too strong. Meaning, it's it's again, it's going to be allowed for any implicate almost any implication. We're going to be much more lenient in allowing it in the in specific cases. One second, let me explain, Manny. I'm answering your question. But you know, it's just because let's say the the person woke up one morning and said, "I don't want to have this baby." I don't know if that would be sufficient. It has to be some either financial reason, some real reason that uh, that the woman, you know, or, or whatever the case is, you know, just, uh, you know, just a mistake, I'm not sure would be enough. I don't know. But but clearly, again, I just want to point out that in Jewish law, even though we said before, we just, uh, Shelley just mentioned, we do, uh, let's see, we'll do, uh, we can do research, etc. on the on this fetal tissue, but we still, Destroying potential life is also a problem. Even wasting seed, as we know, is a prohibition um, for males, at least, uh, to just uh, to spill seed. Okay, to spill uh, wasting sperm is also prohibited. So that could be part of this also. Um, if wasting sperm is prohibited, so just uh, you know, an abortion 
even before 40 days, it's, it's at least, it's probably in the next stage, it's, it's more potential life than sperm. So, uh, so even, even um, just destroying sperm for no purpose is prohibited. Okay, so, so that's what I'm pointing out. Okay, so the next part, I, want, I don't know if we only have a few, a few minutes left, so what I want to get, the next part is extremely important, so I'm going to try to get through this without, uh, without interruption. Let's see, so this is a fascinating thing here, um, which is, and this is where Texas abortion law is going to come in place. So till now, again, the implication is we're going to assume, and again, it's not so simple, but if fetus is not considered a full life, even up to birth, um, we have to figure out why the implications are abortion is still problematic. If it's not of life, what's the, what's the problem? Why can't we just have an abortion at will? And again, because the, the implication is very clearly, we only allow abortions at later stages if there's a danger to the life of the mother. So why is that? So we're going to deal with that. But before that, I want to show you that there's a key difference here between even in biblical sources between a Jewish and non-Jewish um, abortion, meaning who's performing the abortion. Okay, not necessarily. Right, okay, not necessarily on the about whether the fetus is Jewish or not, but who is performing the abortion. So the the Talmud. And I don't know if we'll have enough time, but the Talmud in Sanhedrin, and I didn't put the whole it's on your on your on the handout here. But the Talmud here is discussing, and there's a fascinating question as to as we know, you know um, Judaism is a universal religion, as we mentioned many times. We even if you're not Jewish, the Torah is, doesn't we don't try to make more Jews. If you're born Jewish, you know, you're stuck. You can check in but you can't check out. Right. Once you're born Jewish, you're stuck. You can get baptized. You can do whatever you want. You're still halachically Jewish. Okay. But if you're not born Jewish, the Torah, where almost every other, at least of the major religions in the world, seeks converts and says, if you're not baptized, you're going to hell. If you're not, you know, if you're not, if you're an infidel, you know, we, you don't get the seventy versions, unfortunately. So, so, but Judaism says it's not true. Even if you're not born Jewish, the Torah is a universal religion. It's for all peoples of the world, all cultures, all, all nations. It's just Jews have a lot more restrictions. We have 613 commandments. And non-Jews have um, the Noah, what we call the Torah, calls the Noahides, have seven, have seven laws only. So their life is a little easier than ours. But they could go to the same heaven. You know, you don't have to be saved in Judaism. Um, to be, to believe in, in, the, in our God, in the Torah... Right, the Torah says you can, uh, you know, do just as well, almost just as well, by staying non-Jew. And this is something we tell all converts before they convert. What are you, what are you making your life miserable for? Why do you want to be Jewish? It's anti-Semitism. Uh, tuition is very high. You have to, you know, buy your wife all this jewelry if she's Jewish. You know, it's a, it's, it's a complicated religion, right? Stay. <laughs> right. It's, 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 it makes life complicated being Jewish, stay non-Jew, you could go to heaven just like anyone else, as long as you keep the seven Noahide laws. You have to, you can't be a pagan, you can't worship Jesus, that's, that is a problem in Judaism, and that, and by the way, there's a whole movement, specifically, by the way, I know here in Houston, we mentioned in the past, something called the Noahide movement, which was started by a guy in Fort Worth, Texas, um, Vendel Jones, who was uh, the movie, the, help me out here. Indiana Jones was based on his life. He started uh, based. He wanted to convert. The rabbis convinced him not to in Israel. He ended up 
um, starting this Noahide movement, which he was told to do by the rabbis, and, and they have something like over 11 million followers in the world now. It's it's former Christians who denounce their faith, their belief in Jesus. Uh, Manny, let me finish the story, and then they uh, and and they keep the seven Noahide laws. So they end up, they're getting, they're being. Um, they're getting uh, the same thing. They're going to heaven. They could have their 70 virgins without becoming Jewish. It's a great religion. Okay, so it's a universal religion. So the Gemara here is discussing, but how do we know what happens if we go through the Torah? It has the seven Noahide laws in Genesis. In, in given to Noah. Many, quickly, what do you want to say? Quick, quick. One second, we're not, we haven't gotten there yet. Wait, we haven't even said the source yet. We haven't gotten to that source yet. I'm first giving... He's okay, jumping the gun. Okay, you're jumping the gun. We're not there yet. Um, okay. So bottom line is, this, so the Talmud here is discussing, and this is the context, and it doesn't look like we're going to get to all of it this week, but the context here is, the Talmud says, how do, what happens, how do you know which laws in the Torah are given for, for the for this Noahides, and which are given specifically to Jews? How do you make that distinction? So the Talmud says a very interesting thing is, if the law was given prior to Sinai, this is the opposite of conventional wisdom, that means the Torah tells us a prohibition, such as um, do not murder, okay, prior to Sinai, which was given to Noah, um, or it says do not rip the limb off a live animal, okay, so those laws, if they're repeated at Sinai, so then it's for Jews and non-Jews. But if the law is not repeated at Sinai, that means we don't find that law repeated. So let's say take murder. When Noah, when Noah came out of the ark, when Noah came out of the teva, so God told him, do not murder. Right? That's the verse we're going to discuss. Here. And in that verse, now that of course is given again, the Ten Commandments at Sinai was given again to Jews specifically, and it says do not murder. So therefore the law of do not murder is given to Noahites for the whole universe, not just if you're Jewish, and also to Jews. Because it repeated repeat it again at Sinai. But let's say you have a law, one of the seven Noahide laws, that the Torah does not repeat at Sinai. Okay? Um, trying to figure out which law that would be. But, um, but let's say there's a law that's not repeated. Okay, so for example, uh, um, Jacob in, in next week's Torah portion is prohibited. Maybe it's this week's actually. I don't remember. This week's Torah portion uh, it discusses that Jacob was prohibited from uh, eating the sciatic nerve of any animal. Um, because after his fight with Esau, his sciatic nerve was touched. The Torah says, forevermore, for all generations, you, shall, you shouldn't eat the sciatic nerve. That's why you can't get kosher filet mignon, for that reason, by the way, because the filet mignon comes from the hind quarter. It's a nice thing to know. So if you're ever in a restaurant that's serving filet mignon, you know, I would check to make sure it's kosher, because you can't really get real filet mignon kosher. It's very hard to get. Possible. But because the filet mignon is the meat right around the sciatic nerve. But the Torah never repeats it at Sinai. It's the only time it's mentioned is one place in Genesis. So says the Talmud, when if the Torah doesn't repeat the law again in at Sinai, then even though it was given before Sinai, it only is a law for Jews, not for non-Jews. The opposite of what you of conventional wisdom. Meaning again, if it wasn't given at Sinai, then the assumption is it's only for Jews. If it was repeated at Sinai, that same law that was given to Noahides, then it's both for Noahides and Jews. If it wasn't repeated like the sciatic nerve law, then it's only for, um, only the law is only for Jews. Okay? So therefore, non-Jews can have filet mignon, Jews can, we don't have good filet mignon. Now, the Talmud doesn't, goes on to say, um, first of all, brings a verse here, and this is what uh, 
what Manny was mentioning, and we'll finish with this source. It says like this, Rabbi Ishmael is cited as saying that a Noahide is liable even for killing a fetus. Why? Based on this verse in Genesis, which again, this is given before Sinai, it says, one who spills when the Torah is prohibiting murder, the language and the nuances of the verse is what the Talmud is extrapolating from here. In number 11, it says, one who spills the blood of man in man, dam ha-dam ba-adam, tomo his blood will be spilled. Okay, so what does it mean? The blood of man in man. That doesn't make sense. Well, how are you spilling blood of man in man? He has a blood clot in a blood clot. What does this mean? So it says that... Your own blood comes out of you. Yeah, but that's... What's the blood of man in man? What does that mean? It's coming out. The hands. Where's the in? Where's Which blood is... It's If it's coming out, it's not in. It sounds like you're killing someone... One man in another man. Okay, one person within another person. Says the Talmud, what does that mean? What is the blood of man in man? Why does the Torah use this nuance of Ba'adam? This is a fetus inside its mother. It's referring to killing a fetus. And what Rabbi Shmuel is understanding... Fetus is a man, which means it's a person. Exactly. So the implication here is that he's saying that the fetus is considered a full life. You're killing... When the Torah warns us about murder, in, for, at least in Genesis, not in the Ten Commandments of do not kill, um, the Torah is saying even killing a fetus will be considered murder. Okay, a very clear implication that a fetus is a life. It says explicitly, yeah. and it's capital punishment. So we have a major That's problem here. The blood coming out. Yes, we have a major problem because we quoted all the way back in our first quote in Exodus 21-23, number 5, that it's only monetary payment if you kill a child. So it's only monetary that's compensation. Only for, that's only for non-Jews. Ah, so that's the question. So now that's, that's what the Talmud is going to say. That there's a difference between abortion for a non-Jewish fetus and a Jewish fetus. Or, or not. I don't want to use the Jewish fetus or non-Jewish. It's about who's doing the abortion. A non-Jew, you know, it's doing an act of killing a fe- of, of abortion would be murder, the implication is, but for a Jew it would not be murder, which is a very troubling concept. That means we're saying the Noahs, the universal laws of Judaism, as applies to non-Jews, is actually stricter for non-Jews than Jews. We know, as we know, our lives are much more complicated than non-Jews. Again, we have the 613. To say that is, is, doesn't make any sense. How could you say... No, it's first of all, how do you understand that? I mean, is it a life or is it not a life? How can we differentiate? Um, that's one problem. How do you differentiate between, depending on who's doing for no, for a non-Jew to kill a fetus, it's murder. For a Jew to kill a fetus is, is not murder. I mean, it's a very strange concept. And and again, and the second problem is going to be, we have a principle here that says, we we it's not possible. You know, the, the, it doesn't make sense to say that a non-Jew will have stricter laws than a Jew. So that's the next source, but we'll have to get to it next week to be continued. And, and this is where, by the way, this is where it becomes a problem with the Texas law, because yes, for us, abortion is very lenient as Jews. But since we live in a state with a majority of non-Jews, it could be for them, um, this law might be more, the way they're setting it up, again, we have to get to that, might be uh, more uh, actually going within halacha for non-Jews. Because we're saying for non-Jews, it is considered a life. So how does that work? Are they allowed to to abort in cases where the, the fetus is threatening the life of the mother or not. So that's what we're going to get to le- next week. So again, a Jew clearly could abort in a case where the fetus is threatening the life. What about a non-Jew? How does that work? If it's a full life, so that changes the whole goalposts here for non-Jews.